brother and I have in mind uh, saying a few things about what it takes to become a disciple of Jesus. And this being a priesthood meeting, I presume that each of us holds a priesthood and desire to qualify as a disciple of Christ. On this premise, I have chosen to say my text, as my text, the fifth verse of the 41st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which reads, He that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. And he that saith he receiveth it and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple and shall be cast out from among you. Christ's invitation to become his disciple is universal. He extends it to everyone. His call and promise is, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he has said that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name, and obeyeth my voice, and keepeth my commandments, shall see my face, and know that I am. Jesus put no money price tag on his invitation. Nephi quotes him as saying, Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth. Buy milk and honey without money, and without price. This does not mean, however, that because he put no money price on it, that there is no cost involved. There is a cost to be paid in becoming a disciple of Christ, a very real cost. But the cost is a performance cost, not a money price. Jesus taught this very plainly. He further taught that those who profess to follow him should realize the cost at the beginning, at the outset. Here are some examples. In the Gospel according to Luke, he said, It came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I'll follow you whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury the dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I'll follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus was not looking for or calling men to do lip service only. He wanted them to realize that following him meant effort and sacrifice. Luke tells us on an occasion where there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple." And whosoever doth not hear his, bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. In these seemingly harsh statements, Jesus was not specifying literal hatred toward one's family as a condition of discipleship, he was emphasizing the preeminence of duty toward God over personal or worldly demands of those who would be his disciples. 
As to counting the cost, Jesus pointed out that wisdom of doing so even with respect to mundane projects. Which of you, he said, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, least happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In this last dispensation, the Lord has taught the importance of complete dedication to his service and strict obedience to his commandments, as, emphasis, as emphatically as he did during his earthly ministry. For example, in 1831, the first year after the Church was organized, the Lord revealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith, who was visiting the saints, then assembled in Jackson County, Missouri, uh, that they uh, were in the land of promise, the place for the city of Zion. This good news heightened the enthusiasm of the saints, who were already eagerly anticipating the blessing of Zion as it would be in its glory. At this juncture, to calm them down a little and impress upon them the fact that the establishment of Zion would depend upon their obedience to his law, the Lord said to them, Hearken, O ye elders of my church, and give ear to my word, and learn of me what I will concerning you, and also concerning this land unto which I have sent you. For behold, I say unto you, Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death, and he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Remember this which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart. The Lord was reminding the saints there, that there was some tribulation ahead before they could enjoy the promised blessings of, of Zion as it will be in its glory. He was warning them that, that in Jackson County, Missouri, which is Zion then and will yet be Zion, where they were going, the law, that is his law, had to be kept. Men had to be true disciples. This was clear notice to the saints in Missouri, and, and it should and must be clear notice to us that keeping the law of God is the principal thing that all who truly become his disciples must learn. A week, uh, uh, a week later, just before the prophet left Missouri for Kirtland, the Lord gave through him a revelation in which he emphasized the importance of complete and total dedication. Behold, blessed, saith the Lord, are they who have come up unto this land with an eye single to my glory. For those that live shall inherit the earth, and those that die shall rest from all their labors. Yea, blessed are they whose feet stand upon the land of Zion, who have obeyed my gospel. For they shall receive for their reward the good things of this earth, and they shall also be crowned with blessings from above. They that are faithful and diligent before me, wherefore I give unto them a commandment, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, mind, and strength. And in the name of Jesus Christ, thou shalt serve him. Confessing and accepting is not sufficient. Then he names some specific things that these saints had to learn to do before they prospered in Zion. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Thou shalt not steal, neither commit adultery, nor kill, nor do anything like unto it. Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. Thou shalt offer a sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in righteousness, even that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And that they, thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. These are some of the specific things the Lord told the Missouri saints to do in order to prove themselves to be his disciples when he first took them to Jackson County, Missouri, the center stake of Zion. His concluding instruction was, Learn that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Well, now this is not the occasion to review the history of the saints in Jackson County, Missouri. Suffice it to say that they did not demonstrate the necessary dedication and commitment to establish Zion at that time. On February the 24th in 1834, after they had been driven and smitten by the hands of their enemies, the Lord told the prophet Joseph that the reason he had permitted their expulsion was, quote, that those who called themselves after my name might be chastened for a little season with a sore and grievous chastisement because they did not hearken altogether unto the precepts and commandments which I gave them. They were not, they were not yet his disciples in the true sense of the term. He did, however, give them this great promise. They shall begin to prevail against their, mine enemies from this very hour. And by hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdom of the worlds are subdued under the, my feet and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. That's our great promise. We will never cease to prevail until the Lord establishes his Zion in this world. The true discipleship of the priesthood of God will determine how fast we move toward that great consummation as we, through living the gospel, fight the debauchery and the wickedness that's going on in this world. And then the Lord said, Let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake, for whoso layeth down his life for my sake shall find it again. And then this shocking statement to me as I think about it, and whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not my disciple. As we contemplate this great declaration, it may be well for us to be reminded of the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood, by which all of us who hold the Melchizedek priesthood are bound. Following a discussion of the holy priesthood and the lesser priesthood, the revelation which gives the oath and covenant of the priesthood continues. Whoso is faithful unto the obtaining of these two priesthoods, or the greater and the priesthood and the lesser priesthood, meaning, of course, the Melchizedek and the Aaronic, of which I have spoken, and the magnifying of their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. And also they who receive this priesthood receiveth me, saith the Lord. For he that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth my Father, 
And he that receiveth my father receiveth my father's kingdom, therefore all that my father hath shall be given unto him. And this is according to the oath and the covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Therefore all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. And then this warning. But whoso breaketh this covenant of the priesthood, after he hath received it, and altogether turneth therefrom, shall not have forgiveness of sins in this world, nor in the world to come. I hope and pray that each of us will remember and perform our obligations under the foregoing covenant and qualify for the blessing promised in the following declaration. Verily, thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul, this is said of all of us here tonight, every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. Now, my brethren, I want to leave with you my witness. I know that God lives, and I'm striving with all my soul to know God himself. I do not remember the time when I had any question about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know as I live that Jesus lives, that he was and is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, and that he is our Redeemer. I know that Joseph Smith opened this last dispensation. It's thrilling to me to contemplate the fact that the Father and the Son, and the son stood before Joseph in the grove, and the Father gave the prophet a personal introduction to his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I know that angels came and restored the priesthood to the prophet and Oliver Cowdery, that God did establish again this church upon the earth, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is his church, that Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven whereby men can be saved, that acceptance and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ which we have the honor to preach and are commissioned to carry to all the ends of the earth is the only means of salvation for this world, both temporally and spiritually. I shall not know these things better at the, in the not-too-distant future when I shall be stand before the Lord to give an account of my work in mortality. As I bear you this testimony, I pray that we shall all fully live the gospel and thereby qualify as true disciples of Christ to obtain the promised peace in this world and the eternal life in the world to come. This I do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brethren, I endorse fully the things that these brethren, especially my counselors, have talked about to you tonight. This matter of the very strict, careful interviews, we hope you will be most careful with them. It's a great joy to greet the priesthood of the Church this glorious night. All over the world, we've, we gather to worship the Lord and give Him praise. My brothers in the priesthood, it was a great thrill recently to have tens of thousands of the sisters of the Church assemble in hundreds of places around the world 
in a special meeting for the women of the church. You will have had your own reports from your wives and sisters and mothers and daughters about the meeting. We feel gratified that we were able to hold the meeting and that technology made it possible. We love the women of the church. We have great respect for them. In following up on that event, I want to counsel you as sons and brothers, fathers and husbands. As you serve with the women of the church, follow what Paul said when he urged Timothy to entreat the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. We men of the priesthood ought to to so do. We must be different than other men, and I'm sure most priesthood holders are. Paul's suggestion that we treat older women as if they were our mothers and younger women as if they were our sisters and to do so with all purity is excellent instruction. Men of the world may disagree. They may disregard women or see them only as uh, objects of direction or as someone to be used on selfish purposes. Let us, however, be different in our conduct, in our, in our relationships with the women. Peter urged us to give honor unto our wives. It seems to me we should be even more courteous to our wives and mothers, our sisters and our daughters, than we are to others. When Paul said that man who did not provide for his own and those of his own household was worse, that man, that man was worse than an infidel, I like to think of providing for our own as including providing for them with affection, security, as well as economic security. When the Lord told us in his, this dispensation that women have a claim on their husbands for their maintenance, I like to think of maintenance as including our obligation to maintain loving affection and to provide consideration and thoughtfulness as well as food. President Lee once observed that the needy around us may need friendship and fellowship as well as food. I sometimes think our own Latter-day Saint women are needy just because some of us are not as thoughtful and considered of them as we should be. Our pantries can be filled with food, and yet our sisters can be starved for affection and recognition. Let us, brethren, support the sisters of our household in their church callings as they so wonderfully support us. Let us not neglect them simply because they sometimes go on being good even when they are neglected. Let our homes be filled with praise and commendation for all those of our household. Let us also, brethren, not get so concerned with our priesthood peers, those men we are associated with in our church assignments, that we neglect our eternal companions for our association with our wives will be forever. Our Father in heaven was gracious enough to give to us for our pleasure and convenience all life on earth. Let me read to you from his personal statements. Quote, and God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and 
fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And he had, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And he, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I read at the priesthood, I read at the priesthood meeting at the last conference the words of the verse of one of our songs years ago, Don't kill the little birds, with which I was familiar when I was a child growing up in Arizona. I found many young boys around my age who with their flippers and their slings destroyed many birds. In primary and Sunday school, we sang the song, Don't kill the little birds that sing on bush and tree. All through the summer days, their sweetest melody. As I was talking to the young men at that time all over the world, I felt that I should say something more along this line. I suppose in every country in the world there are beautiful little birds with their beautiful plumage and their attractive songs. I remember that my predecessor, President Joseph Fielding Smith, was a protector for these feathered and other wildlife creatures. While President Smith at one time was in the Wasatch Mountain area, he befriended the creatures from the hill and the forest. He composed four little verses as follows, and opposite each he drew a little picture of the mountain squirrel. First, he wrote, This is a little chopper squirrel up in the mountains high. He begs us for some grain of corn. With thanks, he says goodbye. And then the bat was next. This is the little Tommy bat who flies around at night. He eats the bugs and skeeters too, which is a thing quite right. <laughs> and then he came to the Bambi deer. This is little Bambi deer who comes to cabin homes. She licks the salt we feed to her and on the mountain roams. And then the bird creatures. This our little feathered friend who sings for us all day. When comes the winter and the cold, he wisely flies away. Now, I also would like to add some of my feelings concerning the unnecessary shedding of blood and destruction of life. I think that every soul should be impressed by the sentiments that have been expressed here by the prophets, and not less with reference to the killing of innocent birds or the wild life of our country that lives upon the vermin that are indeed enemies to the farmer and to mankind. It is not only wicked to destroy them, it is a shame, in my opinion. I think this principle should extend not only to the bird life, but to the life of all animals. For that purpose, I read the scripture where the Lord gave us all these animals. Seemingly, he thought it was important that all these animals be on the earth for our use and encouragement. President Joseph F. Smith said also, When I visited Yellowstone National Park a few years ago, I saw in the streams and the beautiful lakes birds swimming 
quite fearless of man, allowing passers-by to approach them as close almost as tame birds, and having no fear of them. And then I saw droves of beautiful deer feeding along the side of the road, as fearless of the presence of men as any domestic animal. It filled my heart with a degree of peace and joy that seemed to be almost a foretaste of that period hoped for when there shall be none to hurt and none to molest in all the land, especially among all the inhabitants of Zion. These same birds, if they were to visit other regions inhabited by man, would, on account of their tameness, become more easily a prey to the gunner. And same may be said of those beautiful creatures, the deer and the antelope, if they should wander out of the park beyond the protection that is established there for these animals, they would become, of course, easy prey to those who are seeking their lives. I never could see why man should be imbued with the bloodthirsty desire to kill and to destroy animal life. I've known men, and they still exist among us, who enjoy what is to them the sport of hunting birds and slaying them by the hundreds, and who have come in after a day's sport, boasting of how many harmless birds they had uh, the skill to slaughter. And day after day during the season when it is lawful for them to hunt and kill the birds, having had a season of protection and now a happy ending of that danger, and you may hear their guns early in the morning and on the day of the opening of the season as if great armies had met in battle and the terrible work of the slaughtering of innocent birds goes on. I do not believe that any man should kill animals or birds unless he needs them for food and then he should not kill the innocent birds They're not intended for food, for man. I think it is wicked for men to thirst in their souls to kill almost everything which possesses animal life. It is wrong, said President Smith. I have been surprised at prominent men whom I have seen whose very souls seem to be a thirst to the shedding of animal blood. One of the poets stated in this connection, Take not away the life you cannot give, for all things have the equal right to live. And I might add there also because God gave it to them, and they were to be used only, as I understand, for food and to supply the needs of men. It is quite a different matter when a pioneer crossing the plains would kill a buffalo to bring food to his children and his family. There were also those vicious men who would kill buffalo only for their tongues and skins, permitting the life to have been sacrificed and the food also to have been wasted. When asked how he governed so many people, the prophet Joseph Smith said, I teach them correct principles, and they govern themselves. We look to the prophet Joseph Smith for proper teaching. He said once, we crossed the Mbaras River and encamped on a small branch of the same about one mile west In pitching my tent, we found three Massasagas, or prairie rattlesnakes, which the brethren were about to kill. But I said, let them alone. Don't hurt them. How will the serpent ever lose his venom while the servants of God possess the same disposition and continue to 
make war upon them. Men must become harmless before the brute creation will. And when men lose their vicious dispositions and cease to destroy the animal race, the lion and the lamb can dwell together and the sucking child may play with the serpent. And that in safety. The brethren took the serpents carefully on sticks and carried them across the creek. I exhorted the brethren not to kill a serpent, bird, or any animal of any kind during our journey unless it became necessary in order to preserve ourselves from hunger. Now, my brethren, young and old, there's another matter I wish to mention. I wish to read for you a verse from your, from your serious thought. The verse is called Keeping Clean and is in somewhat the same area as some of the other brethren have talked about. When you tell a filthy story, do you ever stop to think what impression you have made upon the crowd? Do you think the boys enjoy it? Do you think because they laugh that you have reason, sufficient reason to be proud? Do you know that you exhibit all that is within your soul when the filthy story passes from your tongue? It reveals your own defilement. It proclaims your ignorance. It disgusts all decent boys who love real fun. Do you think that you exhibit any real common sense when you show the crowd how rotten is your mind? Do you know that you dishonor both your parents and your friends? Think it over, boys, and that is what you'll find. Be a little choice in language. Be a little more refined. If respect to those around you, you would win. You will have a great advantage over those who are inclined to go through life in filth and slime and sin. Brethren, let us think about these things. Ponder them in our hearts. Live worthily. Keep the commandments. Honor your priesthood. And the Lord will love and bless you. And as his servant, I leave my love and blessing with you. I want to mention one other matter before closing. And that is, we've been talking about the great missionary program, which Brother Richards mentioned in the first of the meeting. We have some 26,606 missionaries as of now. Every week they are growing and increasing. We, there are many areas, many states, nations where we have not been able to get in, get visas or get passports. And it is very important if we are to fulfill the responsibility given to us by the Lord on the Mount of Olives to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, then we will need to get an open door to these many nations. I mentioned them the other day, many of them, to the brethren in the regional representatives meeting. We've hardly scratched the surface. We need far more missionaries and we need more countries that will think of us as being their friends and will give us an opportunity to come into their nations and give to their people the finest thing in the world the gospel of Christ that can be their salvation and their great happiness. I'm hoping that every man and woman and boy listening to me this night will make it a solemn practice in their regular lives that they will pray 
constantly for this great blessing to bless the brethren that are making this special effort to reach the leaders of these nations and to convince them we have only good for their people. We will make them good citizens. We will make them good souls. We will make them happy and joyous and good patients in their, in their states. I hope that every family in holding home evening, Monday night, every Monday night, without fail, this will be one of the strong points that will be brought before them. And the father and the mother and the children in their turns will offer prayers which will be centered around this very important element that the doors of the nations might be opened to us and then secondly that the missionaries, the young men and women of the church may be anxious to fill those missions and bring people into the church. In China we have 900, 900 million people. Yesterday after the meeting about 50 little Chinese people came in to see me. I took them all through the building of the church offices and gave them a very thorough uh, program for them. And then I told them, we've been talking about China today. That was the day of the regional representatives meeting. We've been talking about China. We've learned of their good qualities and that there seems to be a spirit of the Lord brooding over them to bring the possibility of the gospel to them. I asked all of those Chinese people who were here at conference, will you guarantee that in all your home evenings and in all your family prayers and in all of your public prayers that you will mention this to the Lord? Now, I know he can do it without our help, but I think he would want us want to know that we were interested in it and that we would appreciate it greatly. So I'm hoping that beginning now that the prayers of the saints will be greatly increased from what they might have been in the past, that we never think of praying except we want to pray for the Lord to establish his program and make it possible that we could carry the gospel to his people as he has commanded. And that is my deep interest and great prayer to you that this will be accomplished. And now, in closing this meeting, I wish to express appreciation for all that has been said by these beloved brethren who have spoken. And now we... We'll close this meeting and I bear my testimony to the truth of it and to the greatness of it in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a glorious sight indeed, brethren, to see this great body of priesthood here in the tabernacle on Temple Square in Salt Lake City. And it's most encouraging to know that others are gathered and thousands are listening to us over closed circuit broadcast in nearly 1,500 other buildings throughout the church. We're all gathered to be directed by the President of the Church, a prophet of God, and other speakers from whom we have heard this evening. We all know that the priesthood is the power of God delegated to man to act in his name in the office which he holds. And no greater blessing can be given to a man than to have a testimony of the gospel and to hold the priesthood of God. I think of this vast body of priesthood holders, all engaged in the work of the Lord trying to promote the cause of truth and righteousness and building the kingdom of God. And we each have an individual responsibility to help do this. We all know that this is the Church of Jesus Christ and that he directs the work of his Church through the prophet of God, even Spencer W. Kimball. I hope we do all know that. Think what it means to know that this Church is the only Church which has the priesthood of God, the ironic priesthood which is so important that John the Baptist himself was sent 
to bestow the godless priesthood upon Joseph and Oliver, and the Melchizedek priesthood, which was conferred on Joseph and Oliver by Peter, James, and John by the laying on of hands. What a tremendous thing to think about as we contemplate the power and authority and the various functions of the office of these two priesthoods. The Aaronic priesthood can administer the sacrament and pass it to the Church members and perform other duties as assigned by the bishop. The priests can actually baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And it is so important that each and every one participating in such ordinances be clean and worthy to justify the confidence placed in them by the Lord. Brethren, I wonder if we take this priesthood too much for granted, or whether we really appreciate and thank the Lord for the confidence that He has in us and the privilege that we have of officiating in the ordinances of the gospel. We cannot overemphasize the necessity of our being worthy of the responsibilities given to us. I pray every night and every morning that our leader, President Kimball, will be blessed with the health and strength, the knowledge and understanding, and the inspiration and revelation necessary to lead the Church as the Lord would have it done. I pray that all of us, as general authorities, will be led and directed by the Lord as we magnify our callings, that we may all speak with one voice and live worthy of the offices which we hold, and that all priesthood holders and all the members of the Church throughout the world will so live as to be an example and influence—pardon <coughs> <me coughs> influence for good among those with whom we, they associate, that the world may see our good works and become interested in the gospel which is the plan of life and salvation to all who believe and live its teachings. The whole purpose of our mission here upon the earth is to prove ourselves and help others to be worthy and prepared to go back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. In order to do this, we must live according to the teachings of the gospel, and the Lord has provided the agency through which we can work to accomplish this purpose. We have the family. And I'd like to refer to, for just a moment to my own family. I was fortunate enough to have my father be the bishop all the time I was in the Aaronic priesthood. When he was interviewing me, I didn't know whether he was interviewing me as a father or as a bishop. But he interviewed me, and he told me how important the priesthood was and what was necessary for me to do to be worthy of that priesthood. He was the best friend I had, and I think every bishop should be the best friend a boy has outside of his family, and know that the bishop is trying to help him to live worthy and prepare himself for the greatest blessing promised by the Lord to, <clears throat> to those who will keep the covenants and live according to the teaching of the gospel. It's wonderful to live in a home where the father is exemplary, where the influence is good, where they hold their regular family home evenings. And the auxiliary organizations, too, in the sacrament meeting and the priesthood quorums all of which are so designed as to encourage us and help us to prepare ourselves. They emphasize the importance <coughs> of keeping the word of wisdom strictly, paying our tithing, attending our meetings, being honest, honorable, and upright in our dealings, and dependable, and to refrain from the use of drugs and swearing, telling dirty stories, homosexuality, and other evil and immoral practices all of which are displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and deprive us of such important blessings as advancement in the priesthood, going to the temple, and going on missions. I am sure that no member of the Church holding the priesthood would want to do anything that would hold back the work of the Lord. If he is with others who hold the priesthood or even do not, are not members of the Church, his actions and his thoughts and influence should always be the very best so that they can look to him as one who is helping to build the kingdom of God and save souls, one who holds the priesthood of God. That's our responsibility, boys, wherever we are. They expect us to live as we are taught and be exemplary. The responsibility of a bishop or state president is to help teach, train, encourage, and strengthen those over whom they have Preside, who they preside to live and do these things to which I have referred.
A young man has the responsibility of soul living as to be prepared for these things. As we work together, the bishop should be the best friend a boy a man may have outside of his home. And naturally, an example to us in every way. But the bishop and stake president have the responsibility of determining by interview whether a man is worthy for advancement in the priesthood, worthy to fill a mission, or worthy to go to the temple. He will determine this by observation of the way we are living and keeping the commandments, and through searching interviews, realizing that it is better not to go to the temple or to go on a mission if we are not worthy and until we are worthy. We have had young men and young women go (coughs) to the temple unworthily, who, after suffering with a guilty conscience for some years, have come to the presence of the Church confessing and wanting to know what their position is. We have also had young men go out into the mission field unworthily, who lied to the bishop and the stake president to get there. It is certainly not right and and is displeasing in the sight of the Lord. It is better to wait or not to go than go unworthily. We know there is great evil in the world and great temptation, and it is important that we resist all temptation rather than trifle with it for the sake of being popular. With all this evil present in the world today, it is most important that we conduct proper interviews, those who are responsible for conducting them. Let us always remember that our main purpose, assignment, and responsibility is to save souls. It is important that they realize that they are the spirit children of God and that we love them, and let them know that we love them and are interested in their welfare and in helping them to succeed in life and no other purpose. It is a great responsibility for a bishop or a state president to conduct a worthiness interview. There is equal responsibility, however, upon the member who is being interviewed. Careful searching interviews need to be conducted always individually and privately. When you interview a young man for a mission, determine through discussion with him what the Lord would want as an ambassador of the Lord to represent him and his Church. Let him explain, for instance, what the Lord would want in a missionary with regard to the word of wisdom, with regard to morality, honesty, dependability, tithing, obedience, devotion, etc. Tell the young man that you are interviewing him on behalf of the Lord. The statements he makes will be commitments to the Lord. Let him interview himself along with you. Would the Lord want him as a representative? Does he measure up in every way? Remind him that the Lord knows and the Lord will not be mocked. Let him know that if there is any, pardon me, if there is something amiss in his life, there are ways to straighten this out. There is a great cleansing power of repentance. He should know that it is much better to postpone a mission for a period than to go unworthily. In almost every case, he can repent and prepare himself for a mission. When there has been serious transgression, he must be referred to a general authority for clearance. But not until both the bishop and the stake president in searching interviews are thoroughly satisfied that he has fully repented and is now completely worthy. You must know also that an appointment is not to be made until the stake president has discussed the case with the general authority to determine whether or not he feels it is time to conduct the interview. Now, if a young man has made a mistake, he should see his friend, the bishop, on his own without waiting to be interviewed. It is a time to rejoice when a young man who has made a mistake clears his life and can start a new, clean, and worthy to be an ambassador for the Lord. Remember, the interview is based on consideration and sympathy and love. This is so important. Let those people know we love them. We are only trying to help them. You bishops and stake presidents might approach an interview for a temple recommend, something like this. You have come to me for a recommend to enter the temple. I have the responsibility of representing the Lord in interviewing you. At the conclusion of the interview, there is provision for me to sign your recommend, but mine is not the most or only important signature on your recommend. Before the recommend is valid, you must sign it yourself. 
When you sign your recommend, you make a commitment to the Lord that you are worthy to be of the privilege granted to those who hold such a recommend. There are several standard questions that I will ask because you are instructed to do that. You are to respond honestly to each one. An associate of mine mentioned that some years ago, when he held a position in the ward, he went to the bishop for a temple recommend. The bishop was busy and said, Now, I know you very well, and I will not have to ask you the questions before signing your recommend. The member responded, Bishop, don't you have the responsibility to ask those questions? It is my privilege to, un- to answer them, and I need to answer those questions to you and to the Lord and would appreciate your putting these questions to me. And so it is. The Lord gives the privilege to members of the Church to respond to those questions in such interviews. Then, if there is something amiss, the member can get his life in order so that he may qualify for the priesthood advancement, for mission, or for a temple recommend. Now, after you have put those required questions to the applicant, you may wish to add something like this. One who goes into the house of the Lord must be free from any unclean, unholy, impure, or unnatural practice. Brethren, we who lead the Church are responsible to see that you are taught in plainness. I therefore must make reference to a matter that otherwise I would not present in a meeting such as this. There are evil and degrading practices which, in the world, are not only condoned but encouraged. Sometimes married couples, in their intimate expression of love to one another, are drawn into practices that are unholy, unworthy, and unnatural. We receive letters from time to time asking for a definition of unnatural or unworthy. Brethren, you know the answer to that. If in doubt at all, do not do it. Surely no holder of the priesthood would feel worthy to accept advancement of the priesthood or sign his temple recommend if any impure practice were a part of his life. If, perchance, one of you has been drawn into any degrading conduct, cast it away from you, so that when you are subject to a worthiness interview, you can answer to yourself and to the Lord and to the interviewing priesthood officer that you are worthy. Remember, you who conduct worthiness interviews are representatives of the Lord, and you must conduct the interviews as the Lord himself would conduct them. That is, there must be nothing immodest or degrading in your interview. Our our interviews are not to be indelicate or offensive or pornographic in any way. May I say here that occasionally we receive reports that a bishop or a state president has been very indiscreet or indelicate in an interview, especially of married members. It's not in order for a priesthood leader to list in detail ugly, deviant, or bestial practices and then cross-examine a member of the Church as to whether or not such things are practiced. One of the general authorities once interviewed a young man who had gone into the mission home who had made confession of a transgression there which disqualified him from missionary service. The general authority was amazed at the sordid nature of what the young man had done, done and asked, Where on earth did you get the idea to do things like this? He was shocked when the young man answered for my bishop. During a preliminary interview for his mission, the bishop had said, Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Describing every unworthy and depraved act he could think of. Such things had never before entered the young man's mind, but they were in his mind now. The adversary put in his way the opportunity and temptation, and he fell. Brethren, our interviews must be conducted in love, in modesty. Oftentimes, things can be corrected if you ask. Would there be any reason that you may feel uncomfortable or perhaps even dishonest to the Lord if you were to <coughs> sign your own temple recommend? Would you like a little time to get some very personal things before you sign it? in order before you sign it. Remember, the Lord knows all things and will not be mocked. We're trying to help you. Never lie to a bishop to obtain a call or a recommend or a blessing from the Lord. If you approach the matters outlined above, the member has a responsibility to interview himself. 
The bishop or stake president has the right to power of discernment, and he will know whether or not there is something amiss that ought to be settled before a recommend is issued. How blessed we are to have the gift of discernment available to us as officers in the priesthood. On occasion, a bishop or a stake president will receive a confession from a member of the Church concerning a transgression that took place many, many years ago. That individual should have made confession long since, but did not, and therefore has suffered unnecessarily. It is not always necessary to conduct a court in such cases. That is up to the bishop. You are entitled to inspiration and guidance, particularly if the individual has demonstrated through his life conduct over the years that that mistake is not characteristic of his life. How marvelous that inspiration and revelation may accompany us in our duties. Brethren, be worthy of that. We frequently hear accounts of how bishops and stake presidents motivated by consideration and love have been inspired in conducting interviews and have been able, where problems were present, to help members of the Church correct their course in life so that they became completely worthy to fulfill missions, to be advanced in the priesthood, or to enter the house of the Lord. And that's what we're trying to do, help these young men through love and understanding and interest to do those things which are necessary in their lives for them to enjoy the blessings of faithful. Again, I say what a blessing that we have discernment and revelation and inspiration to guide us to the main purpose, which is to save souls, yes, even our own, and help prepare our members to understand the purpose of their mission here upon the earth and to prepare themselves to go back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Now, brethren, we are about to hear from our beloved President, Spencer W. Kimball, a prophet of God through whom the Lord himself directs this Church. May we all listen and believe and follow him, I humbly pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.